your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium. Welcome aboard. Let's get going with my usual array of questions. We'll start with this one. In 2002, the Royal Society of Chemistry in Britain bestowed an extraordinary honorary fellowship on a man who never lived. Who was that man? And I'll give you yet another uh, question here. This time we're going to 1878. English photographer Edward Mybridge answered a long-standing question with his photographs taken at Leyland Stafford's horse farm in Palo Alto, California. What was the question that was answered? Okay, so there we go. Let me just uh, repeat these to make sure you get them. In 2002, Royal Society of Chemistry in Britain bestowed an extraordinary honorary fellowship on a man who never lived. Who was that man? And then going a bit further back, 1878, English photographer Edward Mybridge answered a long-standing question with his photographs taken at Leyland Stanford's horse farm in Palo Alto, California. What question was answered? If you know the answer to either one of those or both of those, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800 not only answers to these questions, you can give us a call about uh, whatever question you may have that I may be able to answer. So you can phone 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. Of course, you can also find uh, many of the questions and topics that we discuss on the show here on our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. That's also where you can go to register, for free, of course, to our upcoming Trottier Public Science Symposium. This year, it will take place on Monday, September 19th. We'll be holding it uh, at Moise Hall at, uh, at McGill, and uh, we are going to be live. We haven't done that now, of course, for two years. We've had to have the symposium uh, for, um, during COVID, of course, online, but we're going to see what we can do about going back to live. It will be seven o'clock on September 19th, and the topic is stress. Well, what else could it be, given what we've been going through over the last two years? And we'll have two fascinating speakers who will talk about what to do about stress, how we can handle it, and we'll also explore whether or not stress is necessarily bad for us. So if you want to decrease your stress, join us September 19th. And in order to do that, we ask you to go online just to register so that we have some idea of the numbers to expect. So you go to mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you'll see it right there. Very easy to register. And of course, that's also where you can go to sign up for our uh, 
weekly newsletter, which is uh, informative and I hope entertaining as well. Well, let's get down to some interesting things. Of course, there's so many questions that come up about uh, vaccination. Should you get your booster? Uh, if you haven't gotten the third one, absolutely you should get it. The evidence is very clear on that, uh, that it reduces hospitalizations at all ages. <clears throat> if uh, you have gotten the third and are questioning the fourth, uh, the evidence is uh, in as far as people over the age of 65 or so go, and uh, the benefits are there. Under the age of 65, the data just isn't there for that. There's also the question of whether or not one should wait until the so-called bivalent vaccine comes out, and both Moderna and Pfizer are working on that. Bivalent means that it will target not only original SARS-CoV-2 virus, but also the uh, variant, the B1 uh, variant. So it should be an improvement, but it has not yet been approved. So uh, it's hard to know when it will be uh, approved. But I would say that, uh, you know, if you're over the age of, of 65, the evidence now indicates that uh, taking the fourth booster is, uh, is the right thing to do. And uh, since we don't know when the variant booster will be around, uh, I, I think it is time to take the fourth one, which is uh, just what I did. I did that uh, uh, this past week. So um, that's the, uh, the latest on, on this. I wish I could tell you more. Uh, of course, it's always somewhat of a, of a guessing game on whether or not you know, this will eventually be like the flu vaccine where uh, they will have to guess at what variant is going to be active every year and we'll have to get a yearly vaccine or whether they will be able to come up with a vaccine that targets variants even before those variants exist. How could that be? Well, in fact, that could be. There are all kinds of technologies that are being explored. You know that right now, uh, all vaccines share one common uh, idea, and that is to make the body produce antibodies to the so-called spike protein. That's the protein that you see on the surface of, of the virus. You see this in many, many pictures, and it's, it's become sort of I iconic. <clears throat> well, this is the, uh, the protein that the virus uses to enter a cell. It's sort of like the key that fits into, into the lock. But unfortunately, when there's a mutation in that, uh, in that protein, which means that one or more of the amino acids have been altered for another one, then the antibody no longer recognizes it. So the idea now is to find some way to allow the body to generate antibodies to a part of the spike protein that does not mutate, that does not change. Well, this spike protein, uh, like any protein, is made of a long chain of amino acids. <clears throat> and there are pieces of that spike protein that do not change. They do not change because that fragment is important for the survival of the virus. And of course, the virus wants to survive. I mean, obviously, not. this is not a, a thought process by the virus. This is just the way that nature, nature works. So the idea is to figure out which part 
of that spike protein does not mutate because it is critical to the existence of the virus. And if one can design a vaccine that includes only that specific segment of the protein and you generate antibodies to that, that would mean that we would have antibodies for every variant because that particular piece of the virus is found in every variant. So there are theoretical reasons to, to think that we will be able to, uh, in the future, uh, come up with uh, a vaccine uh, that will be superior to what we have now, and maybe even one that will not um, have to be repeated um, every, every year. Uh, obviously, researchers around the world are working on this, uh, this puzzle, and uh, it is uh, you know, likely that, that solutions can be found that we will have perhaps not perfect vaccines, but we will have vaccines that, that will be much, much better than the ones we have now. It's also possible that nasal vaccines that you spray into the nose uh, will um, provide a significant part of the answer because if you can generate uh, antibodies there, they can wipe out the, um, the virus without it ever entering our, our body. So there's a lot of work being done on that as well. All right, uh, so we will get to the lines to see whether or not uh, you have any um, possible uh, answers to my questions. Uh, but right now, let's check traffic. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we'll uh, get to the lines in a minute, uh, but uh, let me just answer uh, some of the questions that have been texted in because I think I can answer these quickly. Uh, one question, is it true that chapstick has an ingredient that makes it addictive because it's actually drying out your lips? No, that is not true, period. Uh, then the question about Dr. Ho's claims about the products that he sells. And I'm sure many of you have seen those cheesy commercials uh, whereby this uh, electronic gizmo, actually he's got several different gizmos that are supposed to resolve pain. Uh, Dr. Ho is a chiropractor, which uh, you know for me usually raises uh, the alarm. But uh, of course, that doesn't mean that we can just dismiss it out of hand. Uh, I haven't seen any really good studies that have shown uh, that uh, his devices work, but I wouldn't rule out that they have some effect because they seem to me to be in the in the category of the the tens machines, uh, which uh, many physiotherapists use. I mean, electrical stimulation can indeed uh, sometimes help with with pain. I don't think it's a miracle; it doesn't cure anything, but it might may help resolve pain. Uh, if, uh, if anyone has seen any controlled studies of Dr. Ho's stuff, uh, let me know and I'll look into it, but uh, I haven't been able to, to find any. Then there's a question about garlic, about making uh, oil-flavored garlic and worries about botulism. Indeed, um, the botulinum clostridium bacterium can grow under anaerobic conditions, and those are the conditions that you'd have if it's immersed in, in oil. 
but of course the bacteria have to be there in the first place. But uh, Clostridia bacteria are found in the soil. So if the garlic has some soil on it, it is possible that the bacteria can multiply uh, in the oil and they produce a toxin, which can be very, very dangerous. How do you get around this? You uh, peel the garlic and you wash those cloves very well uh, before immersing it in oil. And that reduces the, the risk of, uh, of uh, any kind of uh, botulism. And uh, all right, so now we can go to the lines and I think Daryl is on there, Daryl. Yeah, hi, Doc. Hi. Uh, I think I have the answer to your horse photography question. Okay. It's to basically to see whether the horse's legs ever left the ground while it was running. It's the basis for the first practical motion picture. Yes, very good. Very good. And and the answer is what? <laughs> did, it it, uh, did it they, they took a series of photographs to see whether a horse's uh, legs left the ground while it was galloping. You mean all four legs simultaneously? Yes, yes exactly. Yes. And do they? Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the question was whether or not all four of a horse's legs are off the ground when running. So what uh, Edward uh, Mybridge did was he lined up uh, glass plate cameras. I mean, remember, this was 1878. So those were pretty primitive cameras with the, the uh, photosensitive layer coated onto glass plates. And he lined these up along the track, and the shutters were triggered by a thread whenever the, you know, the horses crossed it. And he managed to get a picture showing all four hooves off the ground when the horse was galloping. Now, what was interesting about that is that there's a famous picture that hangs in the Louvre. And the picture is called the 1821 Derby at Epsom, and it's by Theodore Géricault. It's in the Louvre, and that painting shows horses' legs off the ground simultaneously, but when they are all extended from the body. Whereas Mybridge's photos clearly show that the moment when the all four legs are off the ground, those four legs are beneath the body of the horse. So that was the first time that anyone was able to, to you know, answer this question. So it's, it's interesting. We know that at certain point when the horse is, is galloping, all four legs are in fact uh, off the ground. Okay, very good. So thanks for having that answer. And uh, let's see what Kenneth has to say. Kenneth. Angelo. Okay, uh, two things. Uh, the COVID there, I was going to get my fourth booster in April, and I got the COVID, the, 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 the thing. And now it's four months, because it was near the end of April. Uh, so if I get the, the COVID, is, uh, do I have to stay five, six months before I get the next shot? Well, again, you know, it's not clear, but the current opinion is that that really isn't isn't critical. I mean, you okay. don't do yourself any kind of harm by getting the booster like too early, you know. Okay. Anyway, the new variant—they're already using it in England. Right? The, the, the BA, the second variant. Yes, yes, it was. It here, yes, so it might take a couple of weeks, or it won't. It be was too just long. approved in England. You're right, and okay. and. Uh, the latest from Health Canada is that uh, they're uh, thinking that uh, they will come up with the decision on whether or not to approve it within the next two weeks. So we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, got to wait on 
uh, on that one. But uh, like I said, if you're over 65, the evidence is there that a, the, the current fourth booster uh, does work. All right. So um, uh, let me get back to uh, you know some of the uh, well the question that uh, I asked was actually answered by Bill. The question that I asked was in 2002, Royal Society of Chemistry in Britain bestowed an extraordinary honorary fellowship on a man who never lived. Who was that? That was Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional detective had a profound knowledge of chemistry as his chronicler, Dr. John Watson tells us in A Study in Scarlet. And he so often put this knowledge to good use that the Royal Society decided Holmes was worthy of an honorary fellowship. For example, in The Adventure of the Naval Treaty, Watson gives us a glimpse into Holmes's chemical investigations. Quote, Holmes was seated at his side table, clad in his dressing gown and working hard over a chemical investigation. A large curved retort was boiling furiously in the bluish flame of a Bunsen burner, and the distilled drops were condensing into a two-liter measure. My friend hardly glanced up as I entered, and I, seeing that his investigation must be of importance, seated myself in an armchair and waited. He dipped into this bottle or that, drawn got a few drops of each with a glass pipette, and finally brought a test tube containing a solution over to the table. In his right hand, he held a slip of litmus paper. You come at a crisis, Watson, said he. If this paper remains blue, all is well. If it turns red, it means a man's life. He dipped it into the test tube, and it flushed at once into a dull, dirty crimson. Hmm, I thought as much, he cried. A very commonplace little murder, said he. So we are left up in the air about just what sort of investigation the great detective was pursuing, but is likely to have had something to do with poisons, a subject he certainly was interested in. In The Adventure of the Devil's Foot, for example, Holmes figures out that a murder was committed with a volatile toxin extracted from the root of an African plant. While the devil's foot root is fictitious, plant toxins are not. In fact, Conan Doyle earlier in his career as a physician wrote about gelseminum, a potentially poisonous preparation from the root of the yellow jasmine. Then in the case of the Sussex vampire, Holmes uses his knowledge about South American arrow poisons to clear an unfortunate lady wrongly accused of vampirism, and he fingers the real criminal. Science triumphs over nonsense. So yeah, Sherlock Holmes was given that honorary uh, mention uh, by the Royal Society of Chemistry. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's uh, check traffic and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. What is the shape of a molecule? The protein molecule in question. We need the shape of the molecule to understand how it works. I do have a question hanging over from uh, last week. So the question from last week still on our minds is, what is the Styrian defense, S-T-Y-R-I-A-N? If you know the answer, give us a call, 790, 514-790-800. And uh, 
One other question, this should be straightforward, interesting answer. What is the best-selling car in the world? What is the best-selling car in the world? If you know that, text 514-800 or call at 514-790-0800. Uh, I think we do have a, a caller on the line, Steve. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Uh, I was just wondering if you might be able to provide a little bit of history as to how barometric pressure came to be uh, discovered and recognized as an important measurement. And if you could perhaps even mention something about the evolution of, of, of tools or instruments to more accurately measure this uh, barometric pressure. Yeah, I think it goes. The discovery goes back to the Italian uh, Torricelli, uh, and um, I mean, it, <laughs> this is a you know, it's it's a huge uh, topic. Um, you know, just what uh, barometric pressure means. Uh, the simplest way to say it is that air, of course, has mass and it has weight. And the earth is surrounded by a layer of air, which is pushing down on the earth. That push is what barometric pressure is. So we constantly have this, the weight of the air pushing down on us. And uh, whenever we exhale, we exhale against that, that pressure. Uh, so there, there are all kinds of uh, implications uh, of this, weather, of course, uh, uh, influences barometric pressure uh, in terms of exactly how uh, it you know who made the first barometer I think it was Torricelli well, I'll have to check that anyway uh, it's too big a topic to to pass off in one or two sentences but uh, you know what let me given the fact that you have this interest uh, maybe we'll uh, you know look into it a bit and uh, I'll come up with a you know, a better version of this answer so that we can encompass I, I would appreciate that, that. And if, if perhaps you could include in that um, how it became important in uh, like naval navigation with regards to being able to predict the weather, uh, I could see that it would have a, a, a similar parallel importance to a, a magnetic compass, uh, you know. In any case, I okay, appreciate it. Your... Well, that I'm, I, I'm not sure, the naval navigation. I, that I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, okay. We'll, I'll take that under advisement. We'll do something with barometric pressure. Okay, all right. Uh, the um, car question. Uh, actually, it was answered, and I suspect this was not a very difficult uh, question to answer because you can Google it. Uh, of course, you can Google almost, you know, any anything that I ask. I mean, Google is just unbelievable. Uh, yeah, the answer is the Toyota Corolla. And uh, at the end of 2021, uh, sales of uh, the Toyota Corolla stood at about 50 million. 50 million Toyota Corollas have been sold. Now, to, to be fair, though, uh, the Corolla has several different versions. Uh, there's the hatchback, there's the, the sedan, I think there's a sports model. So altogether, it's 50 million. Uh, next to that uh, is the Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, 21 and a half million were sold between 1938 and 2003. And then you might be surprised 
of the car that is third, having sold almost 18 million between 1970 and 2012. And that was the Soviet Lada, a spectacularly unimpressive looking car. Uh, it kind of reminds you of um, the Flintstones, you know, where they would have to to run along, you know, by putting their feet feet down. You look at the ladder and you think, well, you know, you might have to, if it breaks down, you might have to just punch your feet through the the floor and and run along because it seems to be so so skimpy. Uh, anyway, uh, the ladder is no longer no longer sold. The last time it was sold was in 2012. Uh, then, of course, there was the Ford Model T, uh, which between 1908 and 1927 sold 16 and a half million cars. So there, there we go. And the reason, of course, I ask this question is because. Uh, these, of course, are all internal combustion engine cars. And the, the question is, where will the electric car eventually end up? Is it going to outsell all of these? You know, the, uh, the benefits of the electric car uh, are not quite as straightforward as, you know, often portrayed, because there, there are a lot of questions to ask. First of all, the environmental consequences of making the batteries are very significant because of the heavy metals that need to be used and of course the lithium that has to be uh, mined and there's a lot of environmental issues with that and uh, then of course there's also the the question of where the electricity comes from to charge those batteries if the that electricity comes from burning fossil fuel, as happens in many areas of the world. I mean, many places, electricity is generated by burning coal or, or natural gas. Well, if you're doing that, then you're just displacing the carbon dioxide that is released. Instead of it being released from the tailpipe of your car, it is being released wherever the electricity is being manufactured. On the other hand, if the electricity is produced by uh, solar power or by windmills, or as we have here in Quebec, by uh, hydropower, then that's a different story. Then there's no question that uh, electric car is preferable to internal combustion uh, engine. <clears throat> then uh, we still have some issues with the electric car in terms of how long the battery will last. And uh, although some of the newer versions, uh, the Tesla, uh, claim 500 kilometers between charges, uh, that is still somewhat questionable. So the charging is still uh, is still an issue. But I think overall, uh, if one would you know have to generalize, movement towards electric cars is indeed preferable but we still need to move away from the uh, use of fossil fuels to generate the electricity that is used to to charge the batteries all right so uh the question that i have hanging uh, out out there is what is the styrian defense styrian defense we'll check traffic and be right back
your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are both to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Let me take you for a moment to Professor Pomona Sprout's herbology class at Hogwarts. She asked the prospective little wizards and witches a question. The mandrake forms an essential part of most antidotes. It is also, however, dangerous. Who can tell me why? Well, it seems Harry Potter didn't have an idea, but Hermione Granger did. She said, the cry of the mandrake is fatal to anyone who hears it. Well, Professor Sprout acknowledged that the answer was indeed correct and proceeded to hand out earmuffs to the class as she prepared to demonstrate the repotting of mandrake plants. These plants were to be used to make a potion. Why? Well, that potion was to, quote, return people who have been transfigured or cursed to their original state. You know what, J.K. Rowling did not pull the mandrake story out of thin air. She actually had quite an extensive knowledge of herbs, mostly gained from Nicholas Culpepper's 17th century classic, The Complete Herbal, which also stimulated her to explore the rich folklore of plants. And when it comes to the root of the mandrake plant, which is a member of the nightshade family, the folklore is indeed rich. Interestingly enough, it is also speckled with some real science. One of the earliest mentions of the effects of mandrake takes us back to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Rachel, who is barren, agrees to let her sister Leah lie with her husband Jacob in exchange for some mandrake that Leah's son had found. The plant's root was supposed to impart fertility, and as the story goes, Rachel soon gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. The fertility saga may be rooted in the shape of the underground stem of the plant, which, uh, if you use your imagination a little bit, resembles the human body. Much later in the Middle Ages, this myth would be resuscitated with the popularization of the doctrine of signatures. This suggested that God, in his wisdom had placed a signature on plants by having them resemble parts of the body to give a clue about their potential medicinal use. John Donne, the British poet, apparently bought into this fertility myth. In his famous poem entitled Song, he begins, go and catch a falling star, get with child a mandrake root. While the doctrine of signatures has no scientific merit, plants, of course, can harbor a multitude of physiologically active compounds. The mandrake root contains atropine, scopolamine, and hyoscyamine, along with a number of other alkaloids that can, in sufficiently high dose, cause effects that range from drowsiness and hallucinations to respiratory failure and death. As early as the first century AD, Dioscorides, in his famed De Materia Medica, suggested that a, deco a decoction of uh, mandrake in wine would take away the pain of snake bite 
and also make patients insensitive to incisions and cauterizations. Curiously, there seems to be no further mention of the effects of mandrake until around the 10th century, when descriptions of something called spongia somnifera, in English, soporific sponge, began to appear. Although there were several versions of this, the basic method was to soak a sea sponge in an extract of herbs, always including mandrake, and also some henbane or opium poppy. The sponge would be allowed to dry and when needed to induce sleep, moistened and placed under the nostrils of the patient. The herbal extracts could possibly have induced sleep if they were ingested, but sniffing a soporific sponge would not have worked. Nevertheless, the association of mandrake with sleep caught the imagination of Shakespeare. Give me to drink mandragora that I might sleep out this great gap of time. That was said by Cleopatra in Anthony and Cleopatra. Well, due to its properties, both mythical and real, mandrake was in great demand in medieval times. Perhaps the most famous fable about the plant was spawned by growers' attempts to thwart theft. The root was said to alter a terrifying scream when pulled from the ground, a scream that was potentially fatal to humans. The practice, therefore, was to tie a hungry dog to the stalk and entice it with food placed some distance away. When the dog went for the food, it uprooted the mandrake while its master watched safely from afar. Unfortunately, the dog did not survive the mandrake's scream. Shakespeare knew about this myth as well. In Romeo and Juliet, quote, and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth that living mortals hearing them run mad. And the legend also inspired J.K. Rowling's weaving it into several scenes, including one in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Hogwarts students were being petrified by basilisk, a giant reptile, and mandrake was used to make a restorative draught to bring the prospective wizards and witches out of their solidified state. So now you know the story behind uh, Mandrake and its uh, reference in the Harry Potter uh, sagas. And uh, uh, she, as, as I said, uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, did a lot of research, you know, to, to try to bring some, some realism into, into the books. And there are many, many, many mentions of, of herbs in, in, in the books and spells and all kinds of things. And now, of course, the results are, are fictional, but the, the plants that are used are very often real. And uh, the theory of signatures that I, I mentioned is, is very real, and there was widespread belief in that. Uh, indeed, if you take a look at the leaves of the foxglove plant, they seem to be in the shape of little hearts. And uh, the foxglove does give us uh, digoxin, um, in, in a mixture called digitalis, which has long been used to treat uh, congestive uh, heart failure. It was also believed, uh, for example, that the um, uh, orchid was a sexual stimulant because the roots of the orchid have the shape of the male testes. Well, of course, there's no, no truth to, to that uh, effect. 
But it's interesting that, you know, that belief that uh, plants had certain shapes and if, if part of the plant resembled the shape of the human body, it would have an effect on that part of, of the body. Uh, obviously, modern science does not corroborate uh, any of this. And as far as mandrake goes, uh, the, uh, the myths about it, of course, obviously have been dispelled. The mandrake root does not shriek when you pull it out of the ground. And while it does have some physiologically active compounds, there currently is, is no accepted safe use for, uh, for mandrake. Although there are herbalists who will sell it and they claim that it's beneficial for asthma, for constipation, etc., but there is no proper scientific evidence for that. That's it. We are out of time. Remember to check out www.mcgill.ca/oss. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter and also register for the September 19th symposium, live symposium on stress. So until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.